This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. Not only is he incoherent, but he's corrupt. Sensible people have known that you can't trust markets to do everything. Robert Kuttner is a uh, distinguished uh, journalist and commentator. You're also, I think, uh, an academic, and you've been a government advisor. <laughs> Where are you at now? What's, what do we think of you as now? Well, I've had a rather checkered career. I've really been an economics journalist most of my career. However, I've done enough serious economics that they've decided I'm good enough to be a college professor. That's right. You teach at Brandeis. Yeah. And, and so I teach, and... teach political economy at Brandeis. And uh, I've really, my entire career, been looking at variations on one big question, which is, how do you reconcile a dynamic capitalist economy with a society that has some predictability in it for regular people and which uh, sustains democracy? And all of my books have taken on some aspect of that big enduring question. And this one really looks at the impact of globalization on the ability of individual countries to negotiate social contracts that get that balance more or less right. And the book is called Can Democracy Survive Global Capitalism? It's a, it's a very declamatory uh, kind of title, isn't it? I, I have to say, it, it's, uh, having read it carefully, it's one of those books that I now want everybody to read. Bless you. I'm, I'm seriously thinking uh-huh. of going around hotel rooms and replacing the Gideon Bible uh-huh. with it. And say, because it... it in a way, it's, it's quite a comforting book to me, not because it, I mean, it tells a, a, a deeply unhappy story, but it says a lot of the things, it articulates brilliantly a lot of the things I think and believe, which are actually not the orthodoxy. Um, and, and, and that's really your point. In fact, I think you quote, I'm going to quote you in the, uh, in the introduction, you said your purpose is to connect the dots between the rise of right-wing populism, the fall of a social contract that once served the broad citizenry of Western democracies. And that, that's the point, isn't it? Things have changed. Things have, for ordinary people, gone horribly wrong. I think there are two parts to this. I think be- beginning in the 70s, you, you had a bad decade. And uh, between 1944 and about 1973, the economy was growing rather well, and ordinary people shared in the benefits and that gave a real sense of legitimacy to the political class, to the state, to the economy. Pe- people felt they were getting a fair shake. And when we had a bad decade in the 70s, beginning with the OPEC oil price increase and the collapse of the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates uh, and inflation combined with uh, stagnation, and then, of course, you had the particular British variant with, with the winter of discontent. and uh, I remember it ambulance drivers not picking up sick people and rubbish piling up. And so the whole system lost legitimacy. And even though the idea of laissez-faire capitalism had been discredited first and foremost by the Great Crash of 1929, and then secondly by the rise of Hitler and the war, and even though the idea of managed capitalism had pretty well proven its case, the, the right wing got another turn. Mrs. Thatcher got another turn at bat and Ronald Reagan in the States got a turn. And so even though history had adjudged that model a practical failure, there was enough chaos in the 70s that that they got another turn. And I think over the next 40 years, 
the revised terms of the economy, particularly supercharged by globalization, left ordinary people thinking that the political class did not give a damn about them, that the Davos class, um, living very well, eating wonderful food, flying off to here and there, and looking down on regular working people as the losers of globalization, blaming it on them, people feeling not only that their livelihood had been taken away, but their dignity had been taken away. And then you, you take that basic economic story and you add the collapse of 2008 and you add immigrants. That is a combustible mixture. It's a combustible mixture. Because regular people feel that uh, both political parties in the US and Britain care more about immigrant rights and refugees and they care about me and my mom uh, they came they, they care more about gay rights and lesbian rights than whether I have a job. And I'm not denigrating that, but I think if you want to expand rights to gays and lesbians and transgender people and uh, have a generous, open-hearted attitude towards immigrants, you damn well better do white right by your working class first, or they're not going to give you the votes to allow you to be open-hearted towards immigrants. Yeah, essentially you're saying that uh, democracy is undermined when, when people feel cheated. And Precisely. You're saying that uh, the, it, that's true. They have, they have a very good point when they, when they feel that they've well, not gotten that fair shake of the Yes, stick. and two other things. Um, I blame the center-left so-called as much as I blame the center-right. Uh, I mean, you had this period in the 90s where Clinton in the United States, Blair in Britain, Gerhard Schroeder in Germany. Vim Koch in the Netherlands, all, the, yeah, all of the whole, guys, the whole yeah. gang. They all moved much further in the direction of Thatcherism than circumstances required. They, they took from the experience of the 1970s um, and the whole period that the center left was out of power, the lesson that there had been something fatally wrong with the post-war model. There really had not. The post-war model worked very well. And I think um, a lot of this was opportunistic. Blair getting into bed with the city, Bill Clinton getting into bed with Wall Street, Schroeder pursuing policies that the conservatives would not dare to have pursued, uh, liberalizing labor markets, which is a polite way of saying battering down wages. And so when the crunch came in 2008 and people really had had enough and they looked around for a global opposition party, they did not find it in the American Democratic Party or the British Labor Party or the German SPD because they were part of the orthodoxy. They were part of the, of, of the group of political rulers who had brought us this new system that is more interested in the privileges of Davos than in the well-being of regular people. And I, so you look around Europe today, the, the left is, is and, and by the left, I don't mean the crazy far left, I mean the sensible social democratic labor left, they're out of power everywhere. Uh, with, the, with the sole exception of Portugal, of all places. And it's awfully hard to suggest a path back to power. Now, the two exceptions, interestingly, are the U.S. and the U.K. And I can tell a quite optimistic story, and I have not been smoking anything, uh, about the U.S. I'll come to that in a moment. And it's interesting you should say that, because the U.S. and the U.K. are the examples, aren't they, of the failure where we've... You know, we've yes. We've, uh, well, we haven't. You have elected President Trump, who, um, without wanting to 
<laughs> to anticipate, we're not huge fans of. And, and, and here in Britain, we voted Brexit, which is perverse. Right. But let me do them one at a time. So Brexit is now down uh, 40, 47, 40 in, uh, in early June in the polls. And if it goes down a little bit further, politicians are going to rethink how sacrosanct that, that referendum was. Um, May is singularly inept. If, if you wanted to design a completely inept Tory leader, She's the most you, you could not do Prime better Minister than Theresa May. Had. I agree. Well, maybe Cameron, but the close tie. Um, problem, of course, is on the Labour side that you've got Corbyn wedded to this old idea from the 70s that something uh, horribly bad about the EU in its bones. And there's a there is a path to saying, well, we really need to stay, we need to remain, but we need to re renegotiate. And granted, that's difficult because the Europeans might not be willing to do much renegotiating. But that's a possible politics for the Labour Party. But Corbyn's not going to do that. So that's, that's my uh, brief story of Britain. U.S. is rather different. And at least in Britain, you have an opposition party that is around 40% in the polls that conceivably could govern. I mean, leaving aside the peculiar case of, of, of Corbyn. Okay, in the States, Trump is very rapidly in the process of doing himself in. And Republicans are beginning to desert him. And uh, if you look at the upcoming uh, elections in November for the House of Representatives, uh, the Democrats are very, very likely to win back control of the House. That means they can do an impeachment. That means they have all kinds of investigative power because when you uh, are the majority party in the House under the American system of strong committees, you have all the committee chairs. The committee chairs can issue subpoenas and they can launch one investigation after another that will be very embarrassing to other Republicans. And if you go back and look at by-elections in the states, there have been five by-elections since November 16, which was the presidential election for House seats that came open. The average swing to the Democrats has been 22 points. So if that swing were to hold in the general election in the fall, uh, the Democrats would pick up about 70 seats, and they only need 24 to take control of the House. So then, looking forward, I think there's a quite decent chance that not only will a Democrat win in 2020, but a progressive Democrat, a Roosevelt Democrat, not a Bill Clinton Democrat, will be the next president. And I think that could be transformative. So I can actually, I can actually suggest a plausible road back to power for a progressive version of the Democratic Party. Awfully hard to do that anywhere in Europe. But would it be one that, that put in place a, a, some sort of reversal of this uh, of this sort of uh, neoliberal uh, free yes. marketing, because that, yes. that's, that's the point, isn't that's it? That's the point. And for that reason, who the Democratic nominee is, is everybody as important as whether the Democrat wins. If you have another one of these Bill Clinton, Wall Street Democrats who don't fundamentally change the financial domination of everything so that ordinary people don't feel they're getting a fair shake, then the appeal of neo-fascism keeps increasing. Uh, so the stakes could not be higher, uh, not only in terms of whether Trump's ousted, but in terms of what sort of government succeeds him. 
While we're talking about President Trump, as, as we speak, it's the week in which um, he's he's uh, imposed these uh, steel uh, yes. tariffs. And reading your book, I was dying to know what you think about that. If globalization is a large part of the problem, and if uh, the, the the free market dogma is uh, is is degrading ordinary workers' um, uh, status and standards. Um, what, what's your attitude to Trump's tariffs? Let me address the globalization question first and then come to Trump's tariffs. I think you can make a strong case, I do it in the book, other people like the economist Danny Roderick do it, that um, we let globalization get out of control. Uh, liberalizing trade, that's fine. Using globalization as the basis for demolishing managed capitalism, privatizing the rules, privatizing so many public services, Using globalization as a way for industry to challenge ordinary forms of economic regulation as somehow violating their sacred right of free commerce, that's destructive. Now, having said that, um, Trump, you might say, got the music right and he got the words wrong. He started out at a very high level of generalization, criticizing the free trade orthodoxy. But as soon as he got down to making actual policy, his fundamental incoherence, his fundamental impatience and ignorance of detail came to the fore. So, for example, if you were trying to say to the Chinese, look, if you want access to our markets, you need to play by the rules. You can't subsidize your industry underprice our industry unfairly, steal our intellectual property, um, force deals on European or American multinationals where they can come into China to produce, but they can't produce for export, for the domestic market, they can only produce for export. That's not fair. But if you were, and I've advocated that, uh, if you were going to pursue that policy, the last thing you would do would be to pick a fight with the EU. Because first of all, the EU doesn't illegally subsidize. The EU and the United States pretty much play by the same rules. And secondly, if you have any prayer of being taken seriously by the regime in Beijing, you need a concerted effort by the EU and the United States. Trump blows that up. His, his version of how to fix NAFTA is completely incoherent. It changes from one day to the next. And, and then worse, because the man is so fundamentally corrupt, he takes a hard line with China and then China bails out uh, a project of his in, I think, Indonesia to the tune of half a, half a trillion, no, half a billion dollars. And then Beijing cuts a lot of red tape, no pun intended, and gives Ivanka all kinds of trademark protection. And Trump relents. Trump undercuts the people in the national security establishment who, who want to put sanctions on a Chinese a telecom company, ZTE, ZTE, pardon me, <laughs> that, that, that breaks all the rules. So not only is he incoherent, but he's corrupt. Well, at some point, that starts doing damage politically. And I think the Republicans who have been backing Trump out of opportunism and expediency, they also have to answer to the business community. It's a bit like, it's a bit like Theresa May and Brexit. I mean, at some point, if you lose the confidence of the business community and you're the conservative party, Tories in Britain, Republicans in the U.S., you, you kind of have to rethink what you're, what you're advocating. 
I find myself always in someone who's schizophrenic about this sort of thing, because tr- Trump, um, <laughs> it sounds like I've got a flea in my ear about Trump, which I suppose we all have. Uh, Trump also, for instance, cancelled uh, TTIP, the trans, uh, what, the, yeah. the transatlantic trade. Trade and investment, investment. partnership, yep. Um, and I was thrilled that he had. I Me mean, as too. far as I could see, that, yeah. that was uh, as, as much as anything an attempt to um, undermine the National Health Service and, and force it to um, allow American insurance companies oh, t- to... TTIP was an outrage. T- TTIP was kind of the, the quintessential example of using trade deals to undermine regulation and to undermine the right of nations to set their own policy. But... Um, do you think Trump read anything about TTIP? <laughs> Do you think he had a clue? And he's actually, uh, Trump has appointed a lot of incompetent and corrupt people. Uh, among the few smart, competent people who he has appointed are his trade team. Uh, Robert Lighthizer, who's his chief trade guy, terrific man, and um, has been kind of the loyal opposition all these years. He worked for Reagan originally, but he's a, he's a Republican who feels that if we're going to have free trade, everybody has to play by the same rules. And he then went into private practice as a trade lawyer, uh, representing companies who are getting rolled by the Chinese or by whoever. So if, if I were to pick a, a, a trade ambassador, whether for the Democrats or for the Republicans, I would have picked Bob Lighthizer. That's the good news. Uh, so Lighthizer knew that TTIP was a bad deal, persuaded Trump to pull out, good symbolism. But <laughs> Lighthizer has a whole coherent design that Trump, because it's Trump is Trump, keeps undercutting. And so there are a few sensible things that he's done, like pulling out of TTIP, like pulling out of the Counterpart Pacific Agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But when it comes to the more subtle diplomacy of what you do about China, how you make common cause with the EU, and then you've got all the fallout from pulling out of Iraq. We're going to have a trade war between the United States and the EU because uh, Trump thinks he's going to sanction every European bank and every European multinational corporation that does business with Iraq, Iran. I mean, come on, get real. So you, 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 can't, you can't have a fight with all of your allies all the time. And Canada, of all people, I mean, there's no benign... No more benign country on earth than Canada. And, and we have a trade surplus with Canada, by the way, in the States. He's managing to pick a trade fight with Canada. So um, tr- to the extent that I am part of a small group of serious people who have criticized the trade orthodoxy, Trump gives critics of the trade orthodoxy a bad name because he's making such a hash of it. I was going to come to that. I mean, you, you uh, Bob Cutner, you, you, you'd, be, you'd have a lot of sympathy with, with the efforts to properly reward workers in a system. Yes, Even if the free marketers, uh, the, the, the free traders, were right in their economics. But we need to make clear that they're not. You, you, it's a lie, isn't well, it? It's both things. Look, since uh, Bismarck, since Lloyd George, since Alexander Hamilton, since Lincoln, Sensible people have known that you can't trust markets to do everything. You need the state to make all kinds of public goods investments. You need regulation to override the tendency of employers to pay workers as cheaply as they possibly can and to casualize work. So how is it that 150 years worth of lessons about the fact that the free market is not a perfect market suddenly get countermanded just because goods and services cross borders. 
If the free market is not efficient within one country, why is it efficient when it's global? Well, the answer is it isn't. And so if you want to have any kinds of labor standards at all, you either have national regulation of them and you have some kind of social tariff against social dumping, or you have some worldwide schema of minimum rules like the International Labor Organization attempts to do. But of course, all of these so-called International Labor Organization core standards, they're in effect voluntary. You've got dozens and dozens of countries that have signed solemn treaties pledging to abide by ILO core labor standards that you know shoot trade unionists every day. So either you do the one or the other, either you have some kind of global regime that enforces minimum norms, which is almost impossible, or you have social tariffs. Otherwise, your wages are going to converge downward to the wages social of India tariffs and China. To, to allow individual countries to to um, set reasonable standards Precisely. domestically, because this is what this is what globalization is is for, as far as the free free traders are concerned, isn't it? It's to take away the power of an individual nation or an, a group to protect themselves against the the the, the rapacious finance that can yes. go anywhere in the world. Yes, and Hayek. In 1938, give or take a year, wrote, the, the reason, and this is almost an exact quote, the reason that I am a European Federalist, he said, is that with a European Federation, it would be impossible for either the Federation or the state to regulate capitalism. Okay, so when, when the young Dennis Healy in the late 50s, I think, announced that he was opposed to the then EEC, it was because the EEC, and he was not even a left-winger, right? He was one of the Gang of Four, if memory serves. He was a communist in, in his youth. Maybe, but, but it probably was. But, but his point was, if, if, if the EU believes in free markets and the EU amasses enough power, we can't build socialism in Britain. And... That was wrong about the EEC of 1957, but it was right about the EU of Maastricht, because the EU of Maastricht, by design, has more and more undercut the ability of the state to have a regulated form of capitalism. Exactly. We, what we've got with the EU is, yes, we've got a, a common currency, a, co a common uh, monetary policy, and, and what it would, 28 fiscal policies. You, you can't run an economy on that well, basis. But you, 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 it's worse than that because you have all sorts of rules that are basically anti-regulation and anti-trade union and pro-austerity. So you've, you've really, you know, Keynes in his youth railed against the so-called treasury view, which was free markets plus austerity. Well, guess who's back in charge? Exactly. That, that's exactly what we, because the EU ought to be a, a, a force. I mean, it's capable. It's, it's got the, the, the size and the heft to be capable for to be a civilizing force and yet we've got the neoliberalism we've got the the uh, or the automatic de um, de degradation and the the austerity that, that there there was a moment when many of us thought that the EU was was kind of a leftish project and that didn't last very long it was about long. half an afternoon wasn't it well it was a bit more than that i mean um i, I think delore i did a long interview with delore before he died Certainly couldn't have done it after he died. <laughs> and uh, he said, the, the, what I most regret 
is that in the Maastricht Treaty, we gave absolute freedom, these four fundamental rights, free movement of people, goods, commerce, of people, goods, capital, and services. And we did not elevate social rights as a primary right. And so... It's interesting you say that, because you, you, you give a fascinating um, uh, short history of, of, of the development of the EU. And, and Delors, um, in your book, is, is as much a, a villain as, as anything else. Well, it's he really... the architect of austerity well, in France it, for Mitterrand. Yeah, but it's tricky. And I think one of the favorite little subsections of the book is called um, A Tale of Two Socialists, where I compare Attlee with Mitterrand. Mm. And so it's, you know, it's July of 1945, first majority Labour government takes power with a huge majority, and Britain's debt-to-GDP ratio after the war is 240%. Britain's lost a fourth of her national wealth. And so you would think the austerity police would say, well, you need to put up interest rates, you need to reassure international capital. What does Attlee do? He, he keeps uh, top marginal tax rates at 98%, the wartime rates. He continues uh, wartime rationing to build a welfare state. Now, question, why did international capital not pummel the pound? Answer, because the rules of the system precluded that. Fast forward to 1981, Mitterrand, who has a much stronger external position, France, very good shape, not a big debt, he tries a kind of robust socialist program, relance, reflation, 36-hour work week, full employment, nationalize the banks. It only takes two years for international financial speculators to crucify the franc, three devaluations, controls on French tourists, and there's a big debate within the French Socialist Party between the left, Jean-Pierre Chevenement, and the centrists, uh, like Delors. And Chevenement... Uh, basically said, let's double down. Let's do whatever it takes to show that we can have socialism in one country. Let's devalue the franc further. And this was ridiculed as the Albanian solution. And Delors, being the realist, I mean, Delors was a pretty good social democrat, but he was a realist. So he becomes the architect of what some people called austerity with the human face. You, you, you shift from relance to rigueur, you know, from reflation to austerity, but you manage to preserve, it's a bit blairish. You know, you, you fight very hard to preserve free kindergartens, and you fight very hard to preserve social services, but you do that in the context of belt tightening. And so there it is. Why could Attlee do what he did and Mitterrand not do what he wanted to do? Answer, the rules of financial globalization had changed. Financial speculators who could not make bets against the pound in 1945 were liberated to make bets against the franc in 1981. There it is in a nutshell. One is reminded of uh, Greece four or five years ago when Same uh, story. I, I was sure Greece was going out of the euro. And yet, you know, that, that wasn't allowed to happen. But yeah, you've got Alex Tsipras, um, so, uh, as it were, um, going going to the, the edge of the cliff bluffing. And, and it looked to me as, Yanis, as if uh, Yanis Varoufakis uh, it wasn't clued in that it was a bluff. He, he thought that they could uh, well, go all the way. But think about this. So you have a, a good social democratic government under Papandreou, Pasok. They take power, they look at the books, and they say, look at this. The, the, um, the previous 
conservative government had fiddled the books. Goldman Sachs had helped them issue bonds to fiddle the books. And we are going to come clean because we're reformers. So what does Brussels do? Brussels says, well, thank you very much for coming clean. Now we are going to punish you. Then they punish Papandreou so badly that Pasakas voted out of power and a genuine radical, uh, Tsipras, is voted into power. And then even Tsipras is brought to heel because the, the shackles on the ability of one country to go its own way are so intense. And by the way, um, Britain's uh, debt to GDP, 1941, much worse than Greece in, in 2009. And I happen to think that they probably should have left the euro, but they did not quite have the nerve to take responsibility for the consequences. If the IMF had been less draconian, the, the IMF could have come up with a plan whereby they recognized that Greece needed to leave the euro. And it's, it's a small country, right? It's 2% of eurozone GDP. Uh, they could have facilitated a financial transition. But because their whole mentality, uh, what's the name of this guy? Thompson. He's, he's the, uh, the official minder. And his job is to just be in there, flog the Greeks, force the privatizations at fire sale prices, make them destroy their pension systems, punish them for fiscal prophecy that wasn't even the fault of the socialists. Um, so instead of facilitating an exit, I mean, Brexit doesn't make sense. Grexit makes sense. Mm-hmm. But the IMF, the ECB, the EC wouldn't have it. Well, the book asks a question, <laughs> can democracy survive global capitalism. I have the answer. Um, and I was going to hope, I hoped you did. Yeah, if, I, I was going to ask, I mean, what are the, uh, the, the, the so levers? that democracy we cannot survive global capitalism, but democracy could survive and must survive uh, a more tempered version of the economy, which is a substantially social economy of the sort that we built after the war, but modernized for this century where it's partly private, partly social, much more tightly regulated. And if we can do that, if we can bring the predatory tendencies of raw capitalism back under control, then we can get our democracy back. If we don't do that, we are likely to have Putinism, where you have not just raw capitalism, but you have klepto-capitalism, and you have oligarchic capitalism, where you have a devil's alliance between autocrats and kleptocrats. And if we don't bring capitalism to heel, we're going to get more and more leaders like Orban and like Erdogan and like Putin and like Trump. Well, Bob, thank you very much. I really enjoyed the book. Uh, I think it's, um, it's eye-opening. and I hope so. Brilliantly argued. Thank you very much. Thank you. The book is Can Democracy Survive Global Capitalism by Robert Cutner. It's uh, £22 in Britain and $27.95 in the States. I recommend it. That was The Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. 